Sometime before his passing last year, the philosopher and Christian, Dallas Willard, uh, wrote this. And I think this is a fantastic statement. He says, The world can no longer be left to mere diplomats, politicians, and business leaders. They've done the best they could, no doubt. But he goes on and he says, This is an age for spiritual heroes, a time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and in spiritual character and power. The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching its message too low. And I think it's extremely insightful that Dallas Willard would connect the message of the church with the capacity of its people to live heroically and powerfully. Because no people can ever rise above the God or the gods that they worship. You become, you always become precisely what it is that you worship. And if the world needs spiritual heroes... It's only going to come from churches that give people not just five principles on how to be successful and seven principles on how to have a good marriage and uh, three characteristics of good parents, but from churches that give people the opportunity to encounter and to experience the awe-inspiring, life-changing glory of God. And I realize as soon as I say the word glory, as soon as I use that, I realize that most of us have no, no idea what that word glory means, even though it's used in churches quite frequently. What does it mean? And how does experiencing God's glory lead to such heroic and powerful living? That's what we're going to uh, get to today. It's what we're going to look at today. So if you would, turn in your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter uh, 33. We're still in a series uh, that's entitled The Gospel in the Last Place That You Would Expect to Find It. Somehow some of you have gotten the idea, the impression that I was done with this series. Maybe that was hopeful thinking, uh, wishful thinking on your part. I don't know. Uh, but we are still in it. We've got a couple more weeks after this still. Uh, and then we'll move on to something else at that point. Since it's been a few weeks, uh, let me remind you of the context of the passage that we're looking at in Exodus 33 today. God has saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. Then... After saving them, he gave them the law, which reaches its moral apex apex in the Ten Commandments. And if you've been with us, I wish I had time to go into this today, I don't. But if you've been with us, you understand the significance of the order of that. The significance of the fact that they were saved very much apart from the law. But by Exodus chapter 32, just one chapter after God finishes giving Israel the law... The people of Israel have already violated the first and foundational commandment of the Ten Commandments. They have crafted an idol of a false god. One chapter after God gave them the law, they have crafted an idol of a false god. That took like no time. And I want to pick up the reading now in Exodus chapter 33, uh, verse 1. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, okay, this is right after they've, they've crafted this false idol. The Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. God says, I will send an angel before you. I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. In other words, a stubborn people. And I might destroy you on the way. Let me paraphrase here what God is saying. He's saying, okay, this intimate relationship that we have talked about and that you guys were so excited about, uh, this isn't going to work. 
Uh, you're just going to keep trampling over this relationship. So here's the deal. I'm going to send an angel. I'll put you in the land that I promised you. I will make you economically, politically, and militarily successful. But I'm not going to go with you. Now, I think if you were to think about that for just a minute, I think you would agree with me that that's the kind of religion that the average American could really buy into. Peace, prosperity, success, and power without having to worry about a God whose presence and authority could cramp your style and limit your autonomy. Wouldn't you agree that that's the kind of religion that Americans could generally buy into? But watch Moses' response. Skip down, if you would, to verse 15. His response is quite amazing. Moses said to him, If your presence, that word presence uh, is a word that really means faith. If your presence, if your face does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? That is an astounding response, really. Because when, when, when Moses says, don't send us up from here unless you go with us, Moses is saying, uh, it would be better for us to just die here in the desert if you're not with us. Uh, just let us die. If you're not going to go with us, just, just let us die. Now that... That that might be confusing to some of you because you might be asking yourself, you might be going, well, wait a minute, Um, isn't God everywhere? So in what sense would he not be with them if he's he's everywhere? you're, You're right, he is everywhere. But understand, when Moses uses that word presence in verse 15, he's not just talking about God's everywhereness. The theological word for that is omnipresence. He's not talking about God's omnipresence. He's, he's talking about God's hereness, his closeness. His, he's talking about intimacy. He's like, I don't want to just, not, not just like you're everywhere. I don't, I don't want that. I, I want you to be here, close, intimate with us as a nation. And, and what he says is, is if, we, if we don't have your closeness, the air conditioning just went on, and I am so thrilled about that. Yeah, please. Um, if we don't have your closeness, not just your everywhereness, if we don't have your closeness, if we don't have intimacy with you, it would be better for us to just die. And what Moses is, is saying here, he's saying something very remarkable. And you, you know, on a Sunday morning, it's easy to miss the significance of this. But what he's saying is human life is meaningless without an intimate relationship with God. Human life is meaningless without an intimate relationship with God. Now, as I said, I know that, you know, just it's on another Sunday. It's a beautiful day in October, and, and it's easy to miss the gravity of what he's saying. Understand something, folks. Philosophers throughout the ages have wrestled with the question of the meaning of human existence. Names like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and Sartre and Heidegger, just to name a few. And many have come to the resolute conclusion that life has no meaning whatsoever. In fact, that's an idea that has become so popular in America that it is taught as fact, not just as an idea. It's taught as fact in many high school classrooms. It's taught as fact in college campuses, and it's reinforced through TV, radio, movies, literature, and every form of the arts. 
But ideas, ideas always have consequences. Like every philosophical idea that there is in the world, they all have consequences. And this past week, three Denver teenage girls skipped school to fly to Turkey to get to Syria in an attempt to join ISIS. Did you see that in the news this past week? And you know why they went? They went because they were promised a husband and a house. And so they, they skipped school to go there to, to join ISIS. And then, in addition, this past week, a Washington teenager walked into a high school cafeteria and opened fire. And there were other things that happened in Canada, other places around the country. Uh, police officers in New York City struck by a guy with an axe. I mean, there were all sorts of things that happened this week. It's interesting to me, as, as media pundits try to unravel the whys of these and other, some of the other actions and things that happened this past week, I long for someone to ask the question, why not? You know, like they're all sitting around, they're all talking about, well, why would three Denver teenage girls do this? And why would, why would a boy from Washington, why would he walk in and, and try to blow away kids in the cafeteria in his school? Why, why, why? They keep asking why, and then they keep talking about why, why, why? And I just am dying for someone to ask, why not? If life is meaningless, why not take life indiscriminately? It doesn't mean anything. Why not join any organization that promises a husband and a house and a few thrills? For the moment. Ideas have consequences. Every idea has consequences. If life has no meaning, then people become either hopelessly depressed, hedonistic, like Ron Jeremy, or susceptible to being radicalized by foreign or domestic terrorists, and by activists of all kinds, whether they're political activists, gender activists, or even religious activists. If life has no meaning, people, they either become hedonists, or they become depressed, or they become radicalized, susceptible to becoming radicalized. Because everyone's looking for some meaning to this life. You can't live life without meaning. And, and Moses argues, he, he answers the question of whether life has meaning. He argues that life is dripping with meaning, but only in the context of an intimate relationship with God. He wants no part of leading this nation of people if God isn't with them intimately. Moses says, all of the prosperity and all of the success and all of the power and all of the freedom in the world is meaningless. If you aren't with us in an intimate sense. Now look, I, I realize that, I realize two things. I realize one, that that's what you expect someone to say when you come to church. But I also realize that in our culture, this is absolutely foreign, what I'm saying. And so there's this kind of like this dual, um, uh, just sort of uh, sense that this is, it, it, you know, there's a dual dulling of your senses when I say that. But if it's not true, what is the meaning of life? If you don't believe what I'm saying, what Mo, more importantly, if you don't believe what Moses is saying, forget me, 
If you don't believe what the Bible is saying, what Moses is saying in this passage, that's fine, that's your freedom. But I just would ask you to extend that idea that life is absolutely meaningless. I'd like for you to extend that out to its logical consequences. And ask yourself, what does it mean for your life? What does it mean for anybody's life? If life is absolutely meaningless and absurd. And if you don't believe it, if you don't understand what Moses is saying, if you don't believe what Moses is saying, I hope you'll keep exploring until you do. Because otherwise, you are going to spend all of your life searching for meaning in a world that outside of an intimate relationship with God has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. Okay, let's move on. Because I want you to see how an encounter with the glory of God leads to the kind of heroic and powerful living that is really needed in the day and age that we live in today. Skip down to verse 17 um, in chapter 33, and I want you to see God's response to Moses. Moses says, don't send us, let us die, if you're not going to come with us. I want you to see what God says to Moses. He says, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked. Because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. And then Moses said, he asks, he asks a very interesting question. He says, now show me your glory. There's that word that we use so much in church that nobody really understands what it means. We're going to solve that today. We're going to teach you what that means. And we're going to show you how encountering God's glory changes people, how it radically changes people's lives. He says, now show me your glory. And I want you to notice God's answer. He says, and the Lord said, so Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. In other words, Moses says, I want your glory. God says, okay, I'll show you my goodness. In other words, if you've seen my goodness, you've seen my glory. If you understand my goodness, you understand my glory. All right? He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. I'll explain that in just a few moments. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Okay, there's so many things here that I, that I would love to show you, but I don't have time to go into all of them. So let's just focus ourselves on the most important things that I really want you to get from this, okay? Let's start with two words, the words glory and the word face. They're synonyms. They're not completely interchangeable, but they are synonyms, okay? And I think as we look at these two words, we'll get a sense of what this idea of God's glory means, and we'll also see four ways that we're radically changed when we encounter God's glory. The, the, the words are, uh, the word glory is the Hebrew word kavod, kavod. And the word face is the Hebrew word panim, panim. And let's just, let's, let's look at a couple of things about what this word glory, this word kavod means. First, kavod, glory, means weighty, weighty. Not in the physical sense of being weighty, but in the sense of importance. Uh, in the sense of being worthy of respect. Now, I want you to think about the implication of this for just a moment. 
When Moses says, I want to see your glory. I want to see how weighty you are. I want to I see how worthy of respect that you are. What this means, you have to understand, when he says that God is, glor- God, that, that, that God is uh, glorious, what he's saying is that God is not a build-your-own kind of God. That's one of the implications of this word kavod, which means weighty. He's not a build-your-own God kind of God. You know, I often, I often hear people say, I'm sure you probably hear this too, you know, they'll say, well, my God is all-loving. And then somebody else says, my God is this. And then somebody else says, my God is, is this. And see, that's, those aren't weighty uh, gods. Uh, that's, those aren't glorious gods. That's, those are construct gods. Have you ever known someone who uh, had such a low self-esteem that they changed their entire personality based upon who's around them at the moment? Ever know anybody like that? How much do you respect those kind of people? How, how weighty do you consider those people? Well, they're not. They're superficial because they change uh, no matter who, you know, just depending upon who's around them. They're not, they're not weighty. They're not glorious. They're not people worthy of great respect. Moses is so struck by God's weightiness, his solidity, that he knows that the only right response to this God is worship. And when you encounter God's glory, you begin to realize that this God, the one that is revealing himself to Moses here, is above all of your likes and all of your dislikes. This is a being that you don't construct. This is a being that you can only submit to. It doesn't matter what you think of him. It only matters what he thinks of you. And so, in other words, I I guess we can summarize it like this. We can say that you have experienced the glory of God when he becomes intellectually real to you. He's not abstract. He's not whatever you want him to be. He's intellectually real. This is who he is. And you begin to develop a certain intellectual awe about him. You say, I can't just decide who this God is to me. I have to discover who this God is and who he reveals himself to be instead of creating him to be what I want him to be. He becomes intellectually real to you. That's, you've experienced the glory of God when he becomes intellectually real to you. Okay, second thing that this word kavod, kavod, excuse me, kavod means. Kavod also means substance. Uh, or matter, because he is so substantive, <clears throat> because he is the subject of life, you have begun to experience the glory of God when he matters more than anything else. Okay? When you encounter the glory of God, he begins, he begins to matter more than anything else. You, 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 you develop this either-or perspective on life. Either there's no God and life is meaningless, or there is a God and nothing else matters but my relationship to him. Everything else is negotiable. Everything is judged by whether it helps or hinders your relationship to God. If a boyfriend or a girlfriend hinders your relationship with God, you break up with him or her. If a job, for some reason, keeps you from growing in a relationship with God, you change jobs, no matter what it pays, no matter how, how much power or notoriety it gives you. You just drop it, because the only thing that matters is your relationship with God. I was talking, uh, hanging out with a group of young pastors uh, recently who were talking about how they had left their jobs in the marketplace uh, to become pastors. And I've, I've been, a, I did that. I left a job in the marketplace to become a pastor, and I've, 
I've been doing this for quite a while now, and I know that being a pastor can get in the way of a relationship with God. Familiarity can sometimes breed mediocrity, you know. And so as, as we were all hanging together and as these guys were talking about this, and they were kind of, uh, kind of, they were kind of proud about the fact that they had left, you know, their, what devotion that they had because they had left the marketplace to become pastors, as if that's the only way that you can really follow God is to become a pastor. And so I did what I sometimes am have this tendency to do, I said to them, I said, let me ask you guys this. Would you be willing to give up ministry if it ever got in the way of your relationship with God? And I swear there were crickets in that room at that moment because they, they weren't anticipating that. But you see, once you begin to, once you encounter the glory of God, you begin to understand that nothing else matters more than him. It doesn't matter what the career is you're in. Ministry, in the marketplace, maybe you're a teacher, lawyer, doctor, I don't know. But if you begin to realize that this thing is getting in the way of my relationship with God, it's over. If this boyfriend, if this girlfriend gets in the way of my relationship with God, it's over. You know, whatever. Nothing else matters more than him. Okay. Let's look now. Okay, so we've looked at the word kavod. Let's kind of look at this word paneum, which means uh, face. And why does God refer to his face? You know, Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God, God says, you can't see my face. And those words are kind of interchangeable. Uh, or, well, they're not interchangeable, but they're synonyms. Why, why does God change to that? Well, the word, the word face um, it, it really speaks to the idea of relationship, doesn't it? I mean, if you're, if you're going to go up to a friend and talk with them, and communicate with them, if you're going to relate to them, uh, you don't look at their knee as you talk to them, right? You, you don't do that. I mean, here they are, and you just look at their knee. You, you, don't, you don't do that. You look at their face. Why? Why do you look at their face? Well, because that's the gate. It's the, it's the relational gate into them. The whole idea behind experiencing the face of God is the sense, you, you begin to sense that God is actually speaking to you. Okay? It's not just that you believe that there is a God in an abstract sense. Like, like there are people who don't have an intimate relationship with God who would argue that, yes, there is a transcendent God. There must be. They, they, they would say, well, look, creation is too complex for it to all have been some kind of molecular accident. Or they, they might say, look, I've seen the birth of a child. Uh, or they might say, I've, I've seen the grandeur of a snow-capped mountain range. And they would say, look, all of that, there has to be an intelligent designer. And so, yes, in a general sense, I believe in God. That's what some people would say. But, but when they say that, they're saying that in a sense that it's kind of vague, that there's not really a personal content uh, in that, Okay. But when you experience the glory of God, you get a sense that there is very personal content in your relationship uh, with him. When you read the Bible, you get this sense that he's speaking to you. Because the Bible stops just being words on a page. Uh, you, you know that you've had an encounter with God and that what was just said 
what you just read, it just it kind of leapt off the page at you, and you have this sense that it was from God to you in that moment. And so you could say you've experienced the glory of God when you sense that he is actually speaking to you personally. It is that intimate of a relationship that you have with God. It's what that part of what that word face means. It's the relational gate to a person. It's, if you're going to talk to them, you talk to their face, and, and you get a sense that God is talking back to you. And then last of all, this word paneum, which means face, it refers also to beauty. Beauty. And so, you know, like if you talk about someone being beautiful, almost always... We're talking about a person's face. I mean, there may be other things that you refer to when you refer to their beauty, but almost always you're talking about a person's face. And so when Moses says, when Moses says, I want to see your glory, what he means is, part of what he means is, is I want to see your beauty. God, I want to see your beauty. See, when you believe in God in a vague, uh, sort of abstract way, you go to him for things, Right? You go to him because, like, there's some crisis in your life and you need something. You need him to do something for you. But when you've begun to experience the glory of God, you you see him, you, you know that he's beautiful, and you begin to find him satisfying in and of himself. You experience the glory of God when you begin to find God satisfying in and of himself, not just for what he does for you, okay? Like, like have you, have you ever, like, I don't know, maybe you've been in a place where, oh, let's say that you were on top of a cliff and you could look out on the cliff and you just see the ocean. And you know how that's so beautiful that you, maybe you just can sit down and put your hand on your chin and you can, hand on your chins and you can just kind of sit there and look at that for, for like hours because it's so beautiful and you just want to take it all in. You're not up there because, you know, you don't have any other motive. It's not like you're, you're trying to sit there and look at that so that other people will walk by and say, oh, wow, what a contemplative person he is or she is or whatever. You're not doing it for that reason. It's just because you're looking at this and you're going, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That is so beautiful. I just want to sit and look at it. Well, that's what it means when... When you experience the glory of God, you begin to find him satisfying in and of himself. Not not because there's all of these other things that you need him or want him to do. It's just that you find him satisfying in and of himself. It's what it means to experience the glory of God. That's how it radically changes you when you encounter the glory of God. And would you notice that at the end of this experience, would you notice what happens to Moses in this moment? All he can do in this moment is bow down and worship. See, you, you can never rise above the God or the gods that you worship. You can never be more powerful or more heroic than the God that you worship, which is why the church can't afford to pitch its message too low. The world needs spiritual heroes and spiritually powerful people. And the only way that those kind of people rise up is when they have encountered the awe-inspiring glory of God. They're so radically changed that they live heroic and powerful lives. And it's no coincidence that Moses, after seeing this, becomes one of the greatest leaders 
that Israel ever had. Dallas Willard is right. The world, we can't afford to leave the world to mere diplomats and politicians and business leaders. The world needs spiritually heroic people who have encountered the glory of God and have been radically changed by him. Now, last thing I, I want you to see in this passage, because you know this series is entitled The Gospel, in the last place that you would expect to find it. And so I want you to see the gospel in, in, this, uh, in this passage. I want you to remember that Moses said, you know, he, he said, God, I want to see your glory. And God told him that he would show him his goodness, but not his face, because no one can see his face and live. Now, I want you to skip down in this passage one more time. I want you to skip down to chapter 34, verse 5. Chapter 34, verse 5. And this is God showing himself to Moses. The passage says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Instead of seeing God's face, all Moses gets is God's back, and he gets a proclamation about God's goodness. Now, um, the proclamation of God's goodness here, if I can summarize it, I would summarize it like this. On the one hand, I'm absolutely forgiving, and on the other hand, I'm absolutely punishing. That's my glory. That's my goodness. Absolutely forgiving and absolutely punishing. And if you're thinking, you're thinking that's ridiculous. Uh, That's a contradiction. You can't be both absolutely forgiving and absolutely punishing at the same time. You, You can't do that. But if you think about it, what God is saying here is that he is so good that he is forgiving. But he's also saying that he's so good in the sense of justice that he can't let anyone go unpunished. He's not like a judge. How would you like a judge? How would you like to go before a judge and have someone on the other side who stole your car and have the judge just wink at that person who stole your car and let him go scot-free? Would you think that's a good judge? Of course not. You'd think that's a horrible judge. Well, God can't be a bad judge. Why can't God just let people off? Well, because he's so good. He's a good judge. Why does God forgive people? Because he's so good. But that's impossible, isn't it? To be such a good God that you can't just let people off, but also be able to forgive? How can you solve that contradiction? We can't solve that contradiction, which is why Moses could only see God's back. Had he seen his face, Moses, like every one of us, would have been struck dead. God's justice would have had to kill him. But here's the good news. While we can't solve that contradiction, God can. Watch this now. The gospel writer John, speaking of Jesus, says this in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, the word became flesh. When, he's refer- when he says the word, he's referring to Jesus. Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen. We have seen his glory. 
the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, you see, is God's answer to this contradiction. While Moses only got to see the back of God, we get to see the face of God in Jesus. Why? Why can we see God's face but Moses couldn't? Because on the cross, in suffering for our sins, Jesus lost the face of God. Now understand that for all of eternity, Jesus had been beholding the glory of the Father face to face. He'd been beholding the glory of the Father. But on the cross, he loses the face of God. God turns his back on Jesus. And when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is for the first time in all of eternity being cosmically ignored by his father. Have you ever felt ignored? you ever felt irrelevant, pointless to someone who matters a lot to you? Have you ever, you ever felt that way? That's what Jesus felt. By the only one who really matters. When in that moment, God turned his back on Jesus. Why did Jesus lose the face of God? The answer is so that we could have it. Why was Jesus ignored? So that we could matter. And what you get here in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, in the, is, is you get the gospel, but there's a little piece missing. This is the reason that Moses could only see God's back. Jesus hadn't come yet. Without Jesus, no one can encounter the goodness of God's forgiveness without also having to encounter the goodness of God's justice for our sins, which would kill us. But in Jesus, God resolves the contradiction. And as we gaze at Jesus on the cross, we behold his glory. We see the goodness of God's forgiveness for us. But we also see the goodness of God's justice. But instead of being meted out on us, it is meted out on Jesus in our place. And when you gaze on that, you will adore. And you will find That God will matter more to you than anything else in the world. And you'll start to realize that you matter to God. And you won't have to look to anyone or anything else to feel you matter. And suddenly life begins to take on meaning like you have never experienced before. And there it is. The consistency of of the Bible's message the beauty of the gospel and the supremacy of Christ, even in the book of Exodus, the place that you would least expect to find the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what you've been looking for all your life. And it changes everything. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, it is too much for us to take in that on the moment that you suffered on the cross, that part of your suffering was that you lost the face of God. You could no longer see his face. You no longer had that relationship with God the Father because, you, because he turned his back on you in that moment. We can't even begin to imagine what that must have felt like to one who had taken and seen and experienced and that glory for all of eternity. 
we can hardly fathom what it means that all of God's forgiveness is seen in you, but all of God's justice is seen in you. And that all of God's justice for me as a person was meted out on you. Or would you give us the capacity this morning to adore, to gaze at your glory on the cross? We don't have to just look at your back as Moses did. We can, we can see, we can behold your glory, your goodness, your justice and your mercy both displayed there in that moment on the cross where your blood was shed your body broken for our sins, for my sins. And Lord, would you change us as we behold your glory? Would you radically change us so that we can be people who live heroic lives, spiritually powerful lives, and we can be agents of grace to a world that so desperately needs your grace, so that we can be agents of truth to a world that so desperately needs truth, and agents of light to a world that so desperately needs light. We worship you, Lord Jesus Christ. You are exalted and you alone. It's in your name.